Hi, this is the Interior Collective, a podcast for the business of beautiful living, presented by IDCO Studio, and I'm Anastasia Casey. As an interior designer, growing your team can feel overwhelming. That first hire is always a total leap of faith. My advice is to always hire for a role, not just an additional person. And today's guest, Marie Flanagan, is walking us through the exact steps to growing your team. For interior designers, hiring should be a revenue stream, not a business expense, because that hire is creating billable hours for you. Stay tuned as we share the gritty details of growing a team, break down successful organization structures, and make a big surprise announcement. As a classically trained and practice architect, Marie Flanagan unlocks a unique level of depth through her mutual consideration of interior and structure. Her homes revealing the magic that transpires when each space is made to augment the other. Her trademark style is evident through the sophisticated use of color, texture, and light, and every home she designs receives her personal signature of timeless elegance and innovative simplicity. Her distinguished designs can be seen in luxury homes and commercial spaces throughout the country, and her work and expertise have been featured by premier publications and websites like Arc Digest, El Decor, Vogue, Southern Living, Domino, Traditional Home, Elegant Homes, Southern Home, Lux Magazine, and so many more. I am so excited to really dig into today's topic, expanding on growing your team and how to really set yourself up for success within those roles. But before we dive in too deep, we have a huge announcement. I know a lot of you have been anxiously awaiting the announcement for the next design camp, and it's official. You're hearing it here first that Marie Flanagan will be joining us at Design Camp this September 21st to 24th in Austin, Texas, alongside Shay McGee as our keynote speakers. And I am so pumped to be bringing Design Camp back to Texas this fall at the Austin proper. Marie was the obvious, perfect choice for our next keynote speaker. I'm so excited about this opportunity. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm just a huge fan of your design camps. I would have loved to attend one, especially kind of just jumpstarting my business. I think that's such a great tool that you're giving people. Well, I know that you will have so much info to share with us, and we're going to give them a taste of it today on episode one of the Interior Collective. Firstly, congratulations on the new house. I am so (laughs) grateful you had time to chat with us as you're literally in the process of moving in. Thank you so much. Can you tell us a little bit about your new home and your journey to move-in date? Yeah. You know, I live in a historic part of Houston called the Houston Heights, and it's one of like the walkable neighborhoods. You know, everybody's really close together. And we live here currently, and um, we had owned the lot for a long time. But when my husband and I like to do projects, because of my background in architecture, I like to do both the architecture and the interiors. So this is a project I've been working on for a few years and we finally pulled the trigger and it's been a long time coming, but I'm so excited to kind of bring it to life. You know, the whole aesthetic is very much all about natural light and organic materials and textures. So, you know, we're in the thick of it right now. Like drapery is being hung as we are speaking. That is so (laughs) exciting. Do you, I mean, I feel like this is impossible to say for any designer, but is this a forever house or is that an abstract concept. (laughs) You know, maybe, you know, I love every bit of it. I have such young children that I just feel like your needs change as a family. And, you know, when we built the house that we're living in currently, we didn't have any children. And so I think, you know, your needs change. And 
um, you know, I'm a big fan of like small intimate spaces. So I don't know. I think it'll be a long-term house for sure. That's so exciting. Well, congratulations. We cannot wait to see it. And now before we waste more of your time as your drapers are going up, let's dig in <laughs> to the juicy stuff. Before we get into growing your team, let's talk about your formal training as an architect because the line between architect and designer can feel so blurry sometimes. Tell us about your background from an architecture standpoint. Yeah, you know, so much of my background in architecture informs what I do every day. And so I studied architecture at university and worked for several different firms. Um, and it, throughout that experience, I learned so much about how a firm operates, you know, how construction materials come together, how a structure is built. And I think that really plays a role in how I approach interior design. Um, you know, I think what made the change for me is when I worked for a smaller design build operation where it kind of got more into the interior aspects and we were designing millwork for example, in the studio, and then they were building it in the shop right outside. So I learned so much about millwork drawings and how parts and pieces come together. And it's what made me kind of fall in love with interior design. And eventually I kind of made my way into residential. How do you feel that that experience in those architecture firms has shaped your interior design firm? Well, I think it has shaped my firm in so many different ways. I mean, the first thing I always begin a project with is with the architecture in mind. I think having the background I have helps me understand the language of architecture, understand how to communicate and what they're trying to portray. And then I feel like my job as interior designer is to kind of take that language and transform it into a different dialect of how it becomes to life in the interiors. And I feel like if you don't just decorate a home, but really design it and consider the architecture and consider how the two speak to each other. Maybe they contrast on purpose. Maybe they're the same, um, same song, different verse. But I think that if you really consider the two together, you can elevate both and the synergy between the two can, you know, be incredible. And I think that's just how I approach all of my interiors is first how do we translate the structure? You know, maybe it's an exterior material we're bringing in. Maybe it's the rafter tails that you see on the inside. You know, what's the style? How do we make it feel authentic? Like, okay, if we're going to put beams on the ceiling, how do we make that feel like we didn't just paste them up there, but they're really part of the architecture? Oh, I just got chills, Ray. That's so cool. It's so amazing to hear the passion <laughs> that you have for your practice um, from an architecture standpoint, as well as the design. At what point in the design process do you come in? And at what point does the architect, do you have a process specifically for that where you set boundaries about working with an architect? Or is it like this fluid, loosey-goosey, see how it goes? I think it's somewhere in between. I think the projects that we're lucky enough to work on today, you know, we're all kind of approaching it as a team. We're kind of all being hired at the same time. A lot of times we refer the architect and vice versa, but, um, you know, we're trying to get a house designed even before construction begins. So there's, there's loose boundaries because different architecture firms, um, they want to be involved in different things. Some want to design the envelope and walk away. Others have an interiors portion of their business. And, you know, I think I've found a lot of success by um, trying to be easy to work with. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, you know, we come into a project with the mindset of being a team player and, 
you know, I just think that there's so much opportunity. You know, I like to say often that each client gives me the opportunity to become a new designer. Like if I was just building my own home one after another, after another, you know, it would probably be very similar in a lot of aspects. But when clients come to you and say, look, I've, I really want a purple house, you know, you got to really stretch your design talent to like make this purple house be amazing. And, you know, I would never build a purple house, (laughs) but like use, I just feel like a really good designer can give a client what they want and bring it to life in a really incredible way. And I feel the same way about the team that you're working with. If you allow the team to help you see things in new ways and go at it with the aspect of collaboration. Um, It's just incredible what you can do together. And hopefully they approach your work the same way. And I think you set boundaries earlier on in the process of, okay, who's going to actually draw the interior elevations? Who's going to hand the package to the contractor? And I think if you're just clear with how you want to work and how you guys are going to work together, um, it can be great. And uh, oftentimes we will split the responsibilities. You know, we will do the interior elevations for the drawings that we need to, because we're doing incredible millwork details and we have to line it up with the wallpaper perfectly, but then we don't necessarily want to draw the baseboard in the garage. So (laughs) the architect will do that. So, you know, I think if you just establish trust within the team early and establish ways that you guys can work together and, uh, you know, so, so much also of working in teams today, especially cause we're working all over the country that, you know, it's over zoom. And I just think the interpersonal relationships of working on a team, it's so much harder over zoom and just getting in front of the team and having a team meeting at least once or twice at the beginning of the project just sets the tone for the rest of the project. And you know what, just, you know, that you can just pick up the phone, call each other you know, let's work out any issues together along the way. And that just makes for a better project, a better design and a better experience for the client because the client wants their team to find synergy together. Yeah, absolutely. So just to clarify, Marie, if someone hires Marie Flanagan, they will also need to be hiring an architect. That is not, you don't do both aspects in-house. You're just doing interior architecture and interior design, correct? 100%. Yes. I have a background in architecture and yes, I do the architecture for my own homes, but no, I do not offer architectural services. Um, It just kind of influences what I do as an interior designer. Do you feel like your background in architecture makes it easier or more challenging when working with an architect on a project? Oh, I think easier, easier because you're coming into it, you know, kind of speaking the same language, Mm -hmm. understanding the same goals. Um, And, you know, I think it helps like with referrals too. you know, always kind of bringing in business. I have one architect here in Houston who, you know, we just love working together and he knows he can trust our work and, you know, we can work in the same files going back and forth. And, you know, we've brought each other several jobs over the years. That's amazing. So now we have a little better picture of the background and you've helped define really how you navigate between working with an architect and coming in as a designer. Let's chat about growing your team to manage design and procurement. We can really focus in on the design aspect. When I was researching your team, I noticed you have designers, procurement specialists, and then you have marketing people. Can you walk us through your firm's organization structure? You bet. I basically have three departments and you just listed them, design, logistics, and marketing. Um, And 
I make sure that each design, so basically we'll start with the design team. Um, each of my designers, each of my lead designers has a team behind them. So I approach each project as a team. And typically it's the lead designer and then they're what we call level one. And we basically have a career path for each of our designers and they start level one and they go up the, um, they go up one, two, three, and then associate. Um, and so we have a team lead for each team and those are typically level two and up and they work together as a team. And not only do we need more than one person because we work on relatively large homes, but it also creates a mentoring process, having a team. Um, and so people are mentored to either become a level two or a team lead or just continue with their career path within our firm. Um, and then our logistics department, we, they work as a, as a group, but each one handles jobs separately. So we have three logistics um, people and then our marketing department where, you know, in the past I've had one person, I've had two people, right? Currently I have three people um, because I really believe in specializing each of my team members into specific roles. That's amazing. I love that you have a system set up to help people grow and to have a clear path. I think a lot of designers have a subconscious maybe fear of like, I don't want to train this person to do everything. And then they go off and be their own interior designer. Like they want to leave and start their own firm. How do you navigate cultivating a situation where someone feels loved and nurtured and see a growth opportunity and also supporting them to do what's best with that for their own lives in the future. No, absolutely. And that's always a delicate balance. And I just believe in growing a firm that, you know, really gives people career opportunities. And I'm constantly focused on that. I'm constantly asking my team, what are your dreams? What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? Do you want that Manhattan apartment or do you want the Mexico beach house? And so if I know what people want to work on, I really try my best to give them those opportunities. And I created the level system so that people knew that they had a career path. I also really let my designers design and have ownership of their projects. And I, yes, I am a very intimate part of every project, but it's not just Marie telling the team, you need to do this. It, we work in a very collaborative way. And a designer can essentially run their own firm within my firm eventually. And that's the opportunity that I try to give my team, especially because at this point, we've gotten to a place where we're attracting really large clients and it's, it would be hard for anyone to hang up a shingle and get this type of clientele. So I feel like that's what I offer designers in, in my career at this point is really, look, you have the opportunity to work on world-class projects. And, uh, you know, if you stay with me, and I can mentor you to a place where you can handle it on your own, you can essentially run your own firm within my firm. That is so inspiring to hear. It's something that I struggle with as a creative business owner. And I just really thank you for your candor and just setting up a situation that can be an industry standard for people and not realizing that that's even out there as an option. So on every project, they have a set design and procurement team. So does that mean or correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll have a set design team and then will it always be the same procurement specialist on that or will it kind of shift throughout the project? It will always be the same team. Got it. Um, and I also even try to like, let's say a client came back for a project number two in four years. If I still have the same design team, 
I will always give them the same team because, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but ownership is huge. You have to give your team ownership of the project. If it's just, again, Marie micromanaging everything, you're going to have to manage everything. (laughs) And that's impossible. You can never scale that way. You have to have people who A, accept ownership and B, you got to give them that freedom to really own the project. And, you know, they also have to establish the relation, especially, for example, at my firm, the team lead establishes a main relationship with the client. And on a day-to-day basis, I'm in meetings with clients and designers all day long. I'm never emailing. So they have to communicate with, with that client. And that relationship also creates ownership. Um, because, you know, it's not just Marie who doesn't want to disappoint the client. It's also my team lead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even level ones at my firm, I think it's so important if the opportunity allows to get them in front of the client too. Because it's when you hear them say, my family lives like this. I need this in my life. It, it, it hits your heart in a different way. And you're like, I'm going to find a way to give them, to the, give them what they want in a beautiful, incredible way. So I know you mentioned that you're still very much a part of each of your projects, but could you be a little more specific as to what your role as Marie looks like on the project? Like, is it just kind of when they have something to show you, they bring it? Is it something that's always scheduled and you know, it's time to review? Are you actually reviewing or just overseeing? Where do you Mm. step in? Gosh, it's kind of a combination of everything you just said. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm intimately involved in all projects. I go to all the design meetings with the client. I go to the site visits, um, especially during the level one and level two phase of the designer's career path. Um, when a designer, and I have a few now, when a designer has been with me long enough that they are at a level three, that's when I step back and I really just become like creative director role and overseeing the overall direction from the office. But no, during when, when somebody's a level one and a level two, level ones, it's still like you're being mentored by a level two very closely. Um, and so I, my role on a day-to-day basis is most of the time working with the level twos, reviewing things, talking about ways we can make it better, meeting with the clients. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a mix, but you know, I don't, I try not to micromanage every single design selection. Um, and so as somebody grows in their talent as a designer and their skill set, I let go more and more. So, um, a misstep or an odd choice I see some people make as they're growing their team is often they'll have a junior designer also be doing their procurement and logistics. And you clearly divide those things out. Can you tell us what a day in the life of a procurement and logistics specialist looks like? What are the tasks that they're responsible for? Well, they're responsible for so much. And just to kind of touch on like growing your business, you know, I had my designers doing logistics too at one point when I was so small. And I just love the advice that you give people um, that you said earlier in the interview about um, that maybe your first hire isn't that assistant. That's such good advice. Um, but no, I, I did it too. And, you know, when you're running a small firm, everybody's wearing a ton of hats, but I got to the point where I really believed in specialization and, um, was able to do that, you know, was able to kind of have the revenue streams to hire that person. Um, and it was such a wonderful day when we figured that out because a typical day for a procurement person is really to bring the project to life that the design team has already essentially sold. And, you know, they're working with craftsmen, they're ordering, they're installing, they're running around town helping, um, you know, put parts and pieces together. 
Um, we even have a, a new, well, we have a logistics person right now who may be transitioning to the design department because of, you know, interest and skill level. And, you know, she has embraced the training program that we've put together. So right now she is even still in the design, in the logistics department, assisting the designers in selecting almost all of our fabrics and going to like, you know, taking our concept and going to select all the fabrics of the design center. So, you know, it does shift based on, you know, who we have at the firm and what's happening, but I definitely believe in kind of having those different skill sets because uh, somebody who really shines in logistics is using a completely different part of their brain than somebody who really shines as a designer. And when you put those two talents together, it's incredible. Do you feel as though sometimes someone could come in on the logistics procurement side of things, but actually end up really wanting to be a designer. I know some of our clients have experienced that someone comes in saying that this is what they want and then they really fall in love with design. How do you manage or anticipate that? You know, I I try to be as upfront as possible in interviews and I definitely tell people, um, I'm not like, if you're going in the logistics department, it's rare to shift over and like your career path in the logistics department is different than your career path in the design department. Um, the person who I'm letting make a transition now, I think just kind of, you know, worked very hard in logistics and kind of showed interest and also showed a lot of talent for design. And honestly, in that situation, I think they just didn't know, you know, cause they didn't have a lot of experience in a larger firm that it can be different roles. Um, so, you know, I try to hire away from it, but, you know, really to me, the ultimate team member is a culture fit. And so if somebody's a culture fit, I'm going to try to like, you know, make their, their career dreams come true as much as I can within my company. Now that we've understood how you kind of divide those up, I have a mindset that hiring is never considered a business expense. It's actually a revenue stream because they are creating billable hours. And so how are you billing for that logistic side of things? Do you charge your clients flat rate for that phase of the process or is that hourly for procurement and logistics? I almost never charge a flat rate for anything. I, my logistics and procurement department, I basically bill out at 50% of what the design team bills out. So it's, I just never bill a flat rate because you just never know at the beginning of a project, what it's going to look like. Yeah. And, um, you know, we also bill like a law firm. So we show every minute of how we're spending all of our time. So if there's a problem or if, you know, there's ever kind of questions from the client, they know exactly what we're doing and how we're billing and, um, you know, why, some months it's more and some months it's less. Yeah. Especially now with all of the pandemic delays, I bet that those numbers are longer and larger (laughs) than usual. One of the things I'm most proud of putting into the world is Design Camp. I teamed up with my good friend, Lindsay Borchard from Lindsay Brook Design to craft a business retreat that both supports and empowers designers with the tools and resources they need to elevate their business. But the best part always proves to be the incredible community formed along the way. It really is the most magical four days full of the best conversation, great food, and actionable takeaways that leave you inspired and prepared to take your interior design business to the next level. If you're ready to invest in yourself and your business, visit design-camp.co to learn more. Again, that's design-camp.co. 
Let's talk about client communication. So you have your level two or three designer, whoever the lead is on that project, who's actually the one who's talking to clients in and out and receiving those emails and answering questions? Well, the first person to make contact with the client is um, somebody who does like client vetting for me. And she kind of helps um, make sure a client is a good fit for us before I jump on phone calls with people who are potential clients. But then once we sign somebody on, then I delegate them to a design team, which basically the three of us will be in meetings and communication, but it's up to the team lead um, to be the main communication with that client. And I guess I need to differentiate between project leads and team leads. Team leads are leading a team and they are also project leads, but sometimes you can have team members who are also level two in which case they are the project lead. So pretty much we assign one person to be, you are the project lead, this baby is yours, and they are the main point of contact. Got it. Okay, that is so clear. It's so brilliant. (laughs) I I am like writing everything down and we will have all of this transcribed in the show notes for you. So if you are driving and listening to this, don't worry, we got you. Okay, so let's step back. You, You teased it a little bit. Tell us about your first hire, what they did, and looking back, if you would change what that role or person would be doing. Oh, goodness. Okay. My first hire was a designer. And I just remember being so scared. I actually called my old boss and was like, I don't know if I can afford to hire somebody, but I really could use some help. And, you know, they were like, well, you know, is it a good person? I was like, she looks incredible. And she was such a great designer. And, you know, we were together for about five years. Um, and so that was just such a great learning curve to get over the fear of like bringing somebody on. And, you know, if somebody out there listening to this is, you know, if they have a small firm and they're not sure if they want to grow it, you know, I hired somebody on an hourly basis and, you know, we kind of had the understanding that like, you know, some weeks would be busier than others. Um, and I think there's a lot of people out there willing to do stuff like that. And especially like if it's going to be a designer, especially like a logistics type role. Um, and that way you can kind of dip your foot into management and, um, you know, really kind of start to slowly grow your team without necessarily the pressure of having a salary. But, you know, looking back, the the first hire that really was a game changer for me was when I stopped doing my own accounting (laughs) and, you know, I just, my advice to anybody is, you know, your first hire, hire somebody who compliments what you do and does the stuff that you are not good at. You know, um, people might be a good designer, but they not always a good manager or a good accountant or a good procurement hire. Who's going to be your compliment so that you guys, so that you spend more time doing what you're really good at. Um, and you know, I don't regret the years I did my own accounting. Gosh, I learned so much. I learned, you know, what a ledger looked like, how to read financial statements, um, and understand the balance sheet. But gosh, that day I, you know, hired my accountant was Christmas morning for me. (laughs) And to this day, I actually have the same accountant who she serves as not just my accountant, but you know, our controller and a mentor. And, um, you know, she's just been a vital part of my business. 
Pro tip, hire your accountant. <laughs> so I talk a lot about hiring for a role, not a body at Design Camp. I have found that when you hire for a role, it means you're truly delegating and therefore removing things from your plate as the business owner. When you hire for a body, you end up spending a lot of your days delegating your to-do list. And for me, that's like what the critical difference is. When you have an assistant, you're just crossing things off your list to handle to them. And a surprising percentage of your time is actually spent just delegating things. If mm. someone is looking to make their first full-time hire, what would you advise or what questions would you ask yourself when deciding who that person's going to be? You know, I think that's such great advice that you give people with, you know, hiring for the role. And I would kind of look at again, like what you need to grow your business. Is it the procurement person? You know, is it you know, for my business, I go, I go back to kind of the way I would try to specialize people. And, you know, your business is the most efficient when people are doing what they are best at most of the time. So if you can get your designers designing and going back to the, they're also billing double what a procurement person. So if you could get that higher billable rate as often as possible, you want to keep that just for numbers alone. And so it made sense to me to bring on a logistic person to allow myself and my design team to focus on designing most of the time. So I really think you need to kind of sit back and, you know, everybody needs to come up with a business plan and you need to come up with kind of your vision for growing that business and who are the people you need to grow. Side note, you also have your MBA, correct? That's right. Yes. yes so you idea. definitely do have that business mindset. So that is so helpful <laughs> to get that insight into your brilliant brain. I admire so much that your team is made up entirely of women. And I'm going to try to get through this without being emotional because I have grown my team of 22 women as well. And many of those women have families at home. How have you built your team and found the right talent to propel Marie Flanagan forward? Gosh, you know, team is so important. And honestly, I've made several incredible decisions along the way, and I've made several really bad ones along the way. Um, but I try to really hire for culture fit first. You know, there's so many of my team members who are incredible, who I kind of trained from not a lot of skills in that area. And, you know, it's easy to say, but it's really hard to find those people. Um, and I really, over the years, have gotten so much better at it. And really, it's about identifying them earlier after you've hired them. Like once you've hired somebody, you know, if it's clear that they are not a fit for the company, you need to let them go sooner, you know, rather than later before it becomes even bigger within the a bigger issue within the culture. Um, and that is really hard. That is the hardest part about running a business is really the management aspects. Awful. Um, but <laughs> it's so really, hard. you know, <laughs> it's so hard. Um, one of my favorite books that I've read is Jim Collins, Good to Great. And it's just about growing a team. And the essence of the book is about you've got to, you've got to hire people who don't need to be managed. And yes, you still have to manage your company, but it's hiring those people who they have excitement, they have ownership, they have energy toward the role, and they multiply your efforts. And um, it's really identifying those key people. And, you know, sometimes you find incredible people, and sometimes you have to search a little harder. Um, 
you know, actually two or three of my best people, I actually said no to at first. It's kind of a joke within our office. They interviewed and I was like, oh no, you're not the right person. And then I came back to them and then they'd been with me for like years and years. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's hard to identify those people with just an interview. Um, but when you have them do what you can to keep them because, they are so vital to a healthy business. Speaking of doing what you can to keep them, I want to talk a little bit about benefits and schedules and just kind of how you've established a company culture to have people stay with you for so long. Um, Mid-pandemic, as people are not hiding in their homes anymore, not that we're over the pandemic, there definitely was like an awakening of how much you're able to do at home versus how much needs to be done in the office and things changed a little bit. Can you share what your work schedule looks like for the team? Is it all in office? Is it flex? Is it in and out? I know as interior designers, there's a lot of site visits and meetings outside of the office, but how do you keep, especially a team of women who likely have families at home functioning and working at the same time? (laughs) Well, we have a mix in the office of different types of schedules, and I have kind of defined it per role. You know, the interior designers, since that's our core business, they are all full time and most of the time in the office. You know, we do have, uh, you know, we have a baby almost every year at MFI. So uh, we love babies and I love kind of honoring the working mom life. And so, you know, if we have sick kids at home, we, we offer flexibility within a full time schedule all day. Um, we, I also, have several logistics members and several marketing team members who are hourly and they have flex schedules. They basically kind of work the hours they can. And I just kind of, um, only require that the job gets done and they can kind of choose their hours from there. And, you know, both different scenarios have different benefits and different, you know, ups and downs to, um, you know, obviously if they work, less than 20 hours a week, they're not even eligible for benefits. So, you know, there's benefits to working both ways. And obviously flexibility is a benefit in and of itself. Um, And, you know, when I was growing, first growing this business, you know, my husband and I couldn't have kids at first. And that was right during the time I was growing the business and really making it what it is. And when I got pregnant, I was so worried, like, gosh, you know, am I able to produce the same amount of work? Am I going to be able to serve my clients well? And, you know, I always say like becoming a mom, um, you know, it helped me have like laser focus for what was important before I was like, yes to everything, all the vendor meetings work until 10 o'clock every night, you know, work on the weekends. And then when I had kids, it's like, oh, I don't have time to do that anymore. You know, it's because now you're choosing between time with your children. And, you know, I, I found it was laser focused for me on spending time on what is most important. And I try to also honor that for my team. You know, I don't ask them to work on nights and weekends. I try to give them, you know, we work hard, play hard. Um, and you know, it works. And I feel like, you know, if you can give somebody the opportunity to be a really great mom and, you know, fulfill their dreams as a designer, I think that in and of itself builds loyalty. I have personally struggled with this question over the past few years as nothing is more important to me than my team, but it's also been a real challenge for someone to be gone for a few months because things move move so 
fast in a business. Yeah. As a yep. small business owner, it can be really hard to plan for paid family or maternity leave. How have you navigated that to create an equitable, supportive company policy? You know, I just tried to be really flexible. You know, when you're pregnant, you have to go to numerous doctor's appointments. Well, I never make my team like take vacation for that. I don't offer paid maternity, um, but I do offer like unlimited flexibility around the birth of your child. You know, I let people like work from home for several weeks before the baby comes. You know, you don't have to come back after three months if you're not ready, if you want to slowly come back. I just try to really, because to me, that is the most precious time of your life. And, you know, of course, if, you know, we of course want you back, but that's another benefit to working as a team, um, you know, because we have, it's, it's not just me and that one designer anymore. It was so much harder as a smaller firm. I, I have to like give love out there to the people who, you know, lose their right hand man for three months. Um, but that's another reason to kind of think about growing your team because, you know, if you have the work to support it, having team members to help pick up the slack during those times, make it so much more seamless when somebody's out. You know, we, we just had somebody come back yesterday from maternity leave. And although, you know, she was, you know, very much missed, you know, the team was able to pick up the slack for her and just like they'll pick up the team for their teammates when, you know, their family life or tragedy or whatever else comes up. Absolutely. Last thing before I let you go. I know you recently launched a wildly successful lighting collection with Visual Comfort, and I'd love to hear a little more about the collection. Thank you. Uh, yes, I love my partnership with Visual Comfort. They have been an incredible partner. Um, and I actually am installing some fixtures for my collection in my house this week. So I'm so excited. But basically, the you know, the inspiration to the collection is all about, you know, filter filtering lights in creative ways through like organic materials and textures and rich materials. You know, we've got like cast glass, seated glass, uh, burnished brass elements. And honestly, we just launched our second um, collection with them at High Point that should be available on their website any day, but it has like a lot of woven materials. And I even, one of my favorite collections we just launched is called the Rigby and it's this light oak finish mixed with a burnished brass and it's a bunch of like chandeliers and sconces and it's a whole like family of fixtures. So really excited about that. That is so exciting. I'll make sure to link it all in the show notes so people can shop it the moment it comes out. Final thoughts. As a company grows, the founder often finds themselves doing less of the design work and more of the management. How do you find a balance between the two as our listeners consider growing their team or are just feeling in the trenches right now? Yeah, I think that goes back again to, you know, finding the right team members who are good culture fit and who don't necessarily need to be managed every minute of the day, um, who can take a role and really run with it. Um, and there are people out there, I promise. So if you haven't found that person yet, keep looking because they're out there and it's incredible how it can really rocket your business to be surrounded by the right people who help you to be better too. Um, and you know, I try to create training programs that of course, at first you're going to be very hands-on training, teaching them how you do things, you know, spend time creating systems and processes that is what is going to free you from the day-to-day -day grind. 
create those systems, write them down, create a document that let's say your logistic person decides to leave you all of a sudden. Well, then you can, you've got that system and process written down, bring in the new person. You're going to have to have that training period again, but at least you don't have to reinvent the wheel and coming up with your own processes in that way is what is going to get you off that treadmill of the, the everyday grind and help you really scale your business to the next level. Marie, thank you so much for being our first guest on the Interior Collective. It makes my heart so happy to have a fellow Texas girl kick things off. (laughs) As previously mentioned, Marie Flanagan will be a keynote speaker at Design Camp this September at the Austin Proper, along with Shay McGee. You can find more details about the event in our show notes. Tickets go on sale Friday, June 10th. Thank you for your honesty, your integrity, and leadership in this industry, Marie. I've looked up to you for so many years, and to have this conversation today will forever be a core memory. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You can follow along with Marie at Marie Flanagan Interiors on Instagram and get lost in her beautiful comprehensive portfolio on marieflanagan.com. If you weren't able to write down everything you heard today, you can find all of the links, org charts, and images we referenced and other details from this episode of the Interior Collective on our website at idcode.studio forward slash podcast. If you loved this podcast, please leave us a review. Our first few episodes are critical to the success of the podcast, and we really hope it's something you'd like us to continue. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear next season, email me at podcast at idco.studio. Again, that's podcast at idco.studio. Tune in to episode two, now available, as I walk you through elevating your client experience top to bottom. The rest of the season is filled with a star-studded lineup, including Jake Arnold, Kelly Lamb, Gail Davis, Blair Moore, Clara Jung, Amber Lewis, Lauren Lease, Beth Diana Smith, Shay McGee, and Lindsay Borchard. Until then, I'm your host, Anastasia Casey, and this is The Interior Collective, a podcast for the business of beautiful living.